0: Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message Have you ever promised yourself? I'll never ever do that. Like, I promised myself that I would never sound like my mom. This is a picture of me, my oldest sister, and my mom and dad. But then I had kids. And all of a sudden, I started sounding exactly like my mom. Don't eat that, don't spill that. Knives are not meant to put in the light socket. For crying out loud, Sheldon, you can't pee on the front yard of the church lawn before church on Sunday. (laughs) As we get older, I think we have this voice that's still in our head telling us what to do and what not to do. And we start promising ourselves that we'll never ever do that thing again, right? We tell ourselves, I promise. This will be the last time I choose work over family. I promise I'll never go to that website again. I promise this will be the last drink. I promise I'll never cheat again. I promise I'll stop cutting myself. I promise I'll stop saying that thing that makes him feel that way. I promise to start working out. It starts today. It really does. I, I promise. But then something happens along the way, doesn't it? We do the one thing that we thought we were incapable of doing. We think, yeah, other people do stuff like that, but not me. I'm better than that. Sometimes we even promise these things to God. We have an amazing experience at summer camp and And we say, I'll never, ever be the same again. Or we go to a catalyst retreat. And we say, I'm changed forever. But then we fail. We stumble. We mess up. And we begin to wonder, was any of that real? Was God actually there? This is how Peter felt. Jesus called him and he famously said, you, Peter, will be a fisher of men. And do you know how Peter responded? Peter left everything and began following Jesus. And he followed Jesus faithfully for several years. But then it all unraveled as Peter turned his back on Jesus during Jesus' darkest hour. Peter did the one thing that he thought he would never, ever, ever do. He denied Jesus. And not just once, but three times. And on that 30 Nile, do you know what the Gospel of Luke chapter 22 verse 61 says? It says, and Jesus looked right at Peter. Have you ever felt so bad that it felt like God was looking right at you? Peter did. On the first week of this series, we talked about the time when Jesus sat down and, and had a meal with Peter. And during that meal... Jesus was telling Peter to watch out, that he was going to be tempted to deny Jesus. We fast forward to John chapter 21, which is after Jesus' death and his resurrection. And again, Jesus is having a meal with Peter. But this time, it's different. Look at this in John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says later... Jesus appeared once again to the group of his disciples by Lake Galilee. It happened one day while Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Jacob, John, and two other disciples were all together. Peter told them, I'm going fishing. And they all replied, We'll go with you. So they went out and fished through the night, but caught nothing. Then at dawn, Jesus was standing there on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was him. He called out to them, saying, Hey guys, did you catch any fish? Not a thing, they replied. Jesus shouted to them, Throw your net over the starboard side and you'll catch some. And so they did as he said. And they caught so many fish, they couldn't even pull it in the net. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loves, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And Peter, when Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him. And because he was athletic, he dove right into the lake to go to Jesus. The other disciples then brought the boat to shore, dragging their catch of fish. They weren't far from the land, only about 100 meters. And when they got to the shore, they noticed a charcoal fire with some roasted fish and bread. And then Jesus said, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Peter waded into the water and helped pull the net to shore. It was so full of so many large fish, exactly 153, but even with so many fish, the net was not torn. Come, let's have some breakfast, Jesus said to them. And not one of the disciples needed to ask who it was because every one of them knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus came close to them and served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. After they had breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you burn with love for me more than these? Peter answered, yes, Lord. You know that I have great affection for you. Then take care of my lambs, Jesus said. Jesus repeated his question the second time. Simon, son of John, do you burn with love for me? Peter answered, yes, my Lord. You know that I have great affection for you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Then Jesus asked him again, Peter, son of John, do you have great affection for me? Peter was saddened by being asked the third time and said, My Lord, you know everything. You know that I burn with love for you. Jesus replied, Then feed my lambs. Peter, listen, when you were younger, you made your own choices and you went where you were pleased. But one day when you're old, others will tie you up and escort you where you would not choose to go. And you will spread out your arms. Jesus said this to Peter as a prophecy of what kind of death he would die for the glory of God. And then he said, Peter, follow me. We're going to talk about Peter here this morning as we start with you. Just close your eyes. Let's pray here together as we start. So, Father, I think so many of us can see ourselves in Peter. There's so much about Peter's life that I think we can relate to. And so, Lord, I pray for your spirit of wisdom and your spirit of revelation, your spirit of truth, to work inside of every single one of our hearts and our minds as we talk through the scriptures here this morning, as we look at at um, Peter's life, as we talk about just what you did in that amazing situation of where you restored him. Father, would you speak your truth into us here today? Well, we ask, God, that, that this that even as we come in here today, that we would leave differently by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 We've been doing this series around here that we're calling At the Table, and we're obviously doing it just a little bit differently. We're kind of tying in how we did Easter and kind of bringing in these stories of Jesus at the table, eating meals with different people. And our, our theme verse for this series is Luke chapter 7, verse 34, which says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That phrase, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. I've been saying this over the last couple of weeks that I think for so many of us, this just kind of goes over our head. I mean, this idea of eating and drinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything? I mean, why are we even giving this any sort of noteworthy attention? And I've been saying over the last couple of weeks that I think one of the major reasons for this is because this idea of eating and drinking is just, it really doesn't have that much impact in our lives to, in this day because I think meals meant way more back in Jesus' day than it does to us here today. I think we've lost the power and the impact that meals can actually have in our lives because the reality is meals have the ability to bring people together, but they also can pull people apart. And when you look at Jesus' life, this practice of eating and drinking wasn't a side point to his ministry. Actually, when you look at it, you see that's a kind of a central point to everything that he did. as a matter of fact, Luke 19, verse 10 says, And the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. We talked about that in the first week, that that was Jesus' mission. This is why he came to planet Earth. This is why he was here, to come to seek and to save the lost. But Luke 7, verse 34, where the Son of Man came eating and drinking, if, if, if Jesus had a method for how we did it, it would be this. This was his methodology. In other words, this is how he accomplished his mission. He lived in a time and a season where the culture of that day was hostile towards him and, and towards his way of trying to introduce them to God and, and bring them close to God. There's a hostility involved with that. And so the way that Jesus walked people into God's kingdom was literally one meal at a time. And so we've been talking about this, and I really think there's, there's kind of this, this thing that happens in every single one of us in the culture in which we live in today because we live in a very similar culture today. It's what's considered now a post-Christian culture. And We've talked kind of the ins and outs, what that really means in our culture. But one of the major questions that we have to address is then how do we live and how do we step into a Christian life in a post-Christian culture, and how do we invite people into this amazing life of following Jesus when there's, in in this post-Christian culture where there's so much hostility and it's not PC and we just kind of feel weird and awkward about talking about our faith with other people because so often it's misinterpreted and so often people tend to see us as being a menace to society. That's what a post-Christian culture is. It's a reactionary movement that's happening in our culture against Christianity. And so in the series what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus' way. How did he do this? How did he handle and and walk people through um, the challenges in the culture that they were dealing with? And so what we're doing is we're looking at different times that Jesus sat down at a table and had meals with really all sorts of people. And so often, these were people that were considered outcasts, people who had been marginalized, people who had failed miserably. To the religious community, these were people who were outside of really God's working. There was no hope. There, was not, there wasn't anything offered to them. They were really out, outside of that. And so this is why there was such a reaction, why the religious community really reacted to what Jesus was doing, because he had this reputation, what's looked at here in Luke chapter 7, they he had this reputation of being a glutton and a, a drunkard, because he was hanging around these, these tax collectors and these sinners and, and these prostitutes. And so here in John chapter 21, Jesus sits down and he has breakfast with Peter. Now this is at, after Jesus's death and resurrection. This is after um, Peter had really failed miserably. Peter had denied Jesus three, three times. And, and so Jesus is sitting down. He's having this meal after all of this with, with Peter. And, and really it's in this breakfast that we discover the heart of God towards every single one of us who have failed. We discover the heart of God towards every one of us who have done the exact thing that we thought that we had never, ever do. It's really the heart of God towards every single one of us who have let others down, and including letting ourselves down, and who have messed up our lives and wonder if there's really any way back. We find the heart of God in this breakfast that Jesus is having with Peter, in addition, It's in this breakfast that I think we see exactly how we are to be with those around us who have failed. Those who have done the exact thing that they thought they would never ever do. Those who had let others down and and let themselves down. Those who had messed up their lives and and think that there's just no way back. It's in this breakfast with Jesus and Peter that we see this dynamic of God engaging people who had literally failed miserably in their life. Now look at this again in in Luke 7 verse 34. Because it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think one of the reasons why this verse is kind of hard for us to understand in our culture today is because when we read those words, tax collector and sinners, it doesn't kind of resonate with us that these are, these are the worst of the worst of culture. When we read the words tax collector, when we read the word sinner, I don't think we have the image that this is the bottom of the barrel of the moral ladder in our culture today because we just don't understand the context there. But that's exactly what those groupings of people were in Jesus' day. And so to kind of transpose this, I think, into our modern current culture that you and I live in today, we have to kind of think of who is at the bottom of our moral ladder today. Because what if Jesus were to eat a meal with them? And so just kind of imagine this here just a little with me. Because if Jesus were to show up on our scene today and you heard of him having lunch with a pedophile, how would you respond to that? If he shows up and you hear that he's having dinner with a white nationalist who marched in Charlottesville, how would you respond to that? If you see a video of Jesus eating a meal around a campfire in a cave with ISIS terrorists in the mountains of Afghanistan, how do you respond to that? How does it make you feel? Scared? Angry? Confused? That's exactly how the people at that time with Jesus were feeling when he all of a sudden he was spending and eating all these meals with these tax collectors and these sinners when he was eating and drinking with them. That's how the people of that day were feeling with those people that Jesus was spending time with. But here's the thing, everybody. When we fall into that category of somebody's tax collector, when we fall into somebody's category of a sinner, when we fall into that category of being the worst in the, of the worst, when we fall into somebody's category of being the, at the bottom of that of the moral um, um, ladder in our culture today. In other words, when we fail, <laughs> when we mess up big time, when we do the very thing that we promised that we'd never, ever, ever do, then all of a sudden everything changes, doesn't it? <laughs> When you find yourself at that bottom where you're somebody else's sinner, you've messed up big time. Now all of a sudden everything changes because now all of a sudden we're the ones who desperately want Jesus to come running after us and to have a meal with him, right? We, we desperately want that for ourselves. Listen, everybody, this is where Peter was. Peter had failed miserably. He had stumbled. He had done the exact thing that he promised that he would never do In other words, he comes into this place of having a crisis of faith. Now I want you think about that, because I wonder if you can see yourself in Peter here today. If you've been there, where you've stepped into a crisis of faith. Boy, I, I can sure relate to him, and this is, this is the story that we're talking about here. And so the question becomes, well then, how in the world did he get here? <laughs> how did Peter get to that, that bottom of the barrel point? How did he get to the point of stumbling so miserably? How did he get to this point of really having this crisis of faith? Look at this in Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1. It says, Shout, a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding God, honoring They ask me, what's the right thing to do? and love having me on their side. But they also complain, why do you fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line of your fast day is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Verse 9, if you get rid of unfair practices... Quit blaming victims. Quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. I want you to listen to what God is speaking here through the prophet Isaiah because he's describing what I think happened to Peter and which I think can ultimately happen to every single one of us, and that is that we have a tendency to segment our lives. So often that's how we kind of work our, work our lives. We segment our lives, and as, as a result, there becomes this growing discrepancy in how we live our lives. In other words, we say that we're God followers. We say that we love God. We come to church. I believe in God, but yet when it comes to how we do business, when it comes to how we spend our money, when it comes to how we treat people, When it comes to how we are with our spouse, when it comes to how we are with our kids, when it comes to how we are with our parents, when it comes to what's going on inside of us, our internal thoughts and our desires, there tends to be a discrepancy, a lack of consistency, and then how we live our lives. And so I want you to think about it this way, because I want you to think of your life maybe as a house with many rooms. And in your house, you can have all different side, types of rooms in your house. Every one of us is just a little bit unique, but you, know, you maybe you have a, a, a marriage room, you have a finances room, you have a hobbies room, you have a work room, a friend's room, a career room, you have a goals and desires room, you have a sexuality room, you have secret rooms. We have all these different rooms that are a part of our lives. Our tendency when it comes to God is that we just add on another room. And so maybe we call it a church room, and in that church room is where we insert God. I think for so many of us, this tends to be kind of how we live We live our life. We, create a, we add on a part to our life, maybe we call it a church room, and we insert God into that room. But here's the problem with all this, everybody. Your faith can't just be one room in your house. You can't just put God in the church room of your life and then go about the rest of your life without God influencing those other rooms. You hear me? Our faith needs to be like the very air we breathe in every room of our life. God needs to be able to permeate every aspect of our life. Not just here, not just on Sunday, not just in your church room. God needs to become the very air that you breathe in every part of your life. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, you don't get wormy apples off of a healthy tree, nor good apples off of a diseased tree. The health of the apple tells the health of the tree. You must begin with your own life-giving lives. It's who you are, not what you say and do, that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. Why are you so polite with me, always saying, yes, sir, and that's right, sir, but never doing a thing I tell you? These words I speak to you are not mere additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundation words, words to build a life on. If you work the words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who dug it deep and laid the foundation of his house on bedrock. When the river burst its banks and crashed against the house, nothing could shake it. It was built to last. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a dumb carpenter who built a house but skipped the foundation. When the swollen River came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying here? It's the same thing that God was speaking to the Israelites. Your faith can't just be another room that you add onto your life. It can't work that way. Your faith has to permeate every aspect of your life because look at what happens When you just add on to your, uh, another room unto your life for God to fill. Verse 49, but if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a dumb carpenter who built a house that skipped the foundation. When the Swan River came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. In other words, if this is how you're living your life, you're eventually going to come to a crisis of faith. This is what Jesus was speaking to us in how, how, how we are living our lives. I want to share with you something that happened to a friend of mine. And I want you to listen to this letter that he sent me from prison. This is what he wrote. My name is Tom. I'm 30 years, 33 years old, and I'm a sex offender. I know for many of you, just hearing those words sex offender makes you mad, and it makes others of you just groan in disgust. But you need to know that sex offenders are just regular people who have made bad choices. I'm just like you, but things happen in my life to set me up to fail. I grew up in a Christian home, but I was introduced to sexual things at nine years old. I couldn't deal with it. I had a good family, but I couldn't talk about what was really going on inside of me and what had happened to me. And so the pain grew into an addiction Secretly, I started dealing with the same-sex attraction, but I couldn't talk about it because I was too afraid of the consequences of speaking up. I wanted help, but who do I call for help? Where do I go? It seemed to me this was the topic too taboo to discuss with anyone. I became more and more troubled through my middle school and high school years, troubled socially, low self-esteem, and even suicidal. I kept thinking, though, there's got to be a different way to live. At 19, I was arrested for sexually abusing my two nephews. A part of me felt relieved because now I could finally be open and get help. But when I was sent to prison for four years, the help that I so desperately wanted was not given. All my counselors told me to do was to accept myself for who I was, accept the thoughts and love myself. This was the help they offered. But to complicate things, everything about the prison system is designed to take away the inmates' hope. My time in prison was so demeaning. All it did was to break my will to succeed. It's very hard to think highly of yourself when you're in prison. And so what's the point? I would cling to letters from friends and family just hoping that people hadn't forgotten me, that they hadn't given up on me, that they were still praying for me. I felt all alone. You would have thought that life would have gotten easier when I was let out of prison. But life outside of prison was in some ways even harder than life in prison. I was forced to return to the county of my offense even though I own a home in a different county. It was difficult to even find a place to live. I mean, who wants to live next to a convicted sex offender? Even temporary shelters like Salvation Army won't help or house sex offenders. I had no transportation, and I needed a chaperone to accompany me in public places or where children were present. Employment was very hard to come by, and I had no opportunity in my field of experience. I had to abide by very, very strict rules and was subject to random $400 polygraph tests that I had to pay for each time. I lived in constant fear of judgmental, dangerous people who might want to hurt me. I always lived in fear that my friends and family and loved ones would be scrutinized and, and attacked and because of me. I always felt like everyone was staring at me even though I was out of prison. I still felt like a prisoner. I worried that nobody would accept or care about me or be willing to be there for me when I was in need. I lived in a constant fear of backlash when I would be honest about my past. Even at church, I felt like I would be shunned if people really knew about my past, or I would be kicked out of church. And and so that would just reinforce the idea that painful, embarrassing secrets must stay quiet and be isolated. And so I always felt like I had to hold back, not being able to live out what Scripture says, that speaking to one another in truth, bearing each other's burdens. I just wasn't sure what was safe. I felt all alone, rejected by society, and even discarded by the church. This was a letter that I received when he was in, in prison. And I, I don't know exactly how you hear those words from uh, this letter, I mean, especially if you've been victimized by somebody. That is, that's real. That's, that is, there's, there's hardly any more hurtful thing that is done if, if you've if you're been um, victimized by somebody. But I do realize that hearing this letter may make you feel scared, It may make you feel angry. It may make you feel confused. Sound familiar? Luke 7, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, how dare Jesus sit down and have a meal with people like that? I think it's easy for us to read, right, until one of those quote-unquote sinners, quote-unquote tax collectors, until they hurt my life. And then all of a sudden, it changes. But yet the lesson from Peter is that the very thing that I despise in others, the very thing that I thought I would never do can ultimately come the very thing I step into and even become. Because as long as my faith is just an add-on to my life, I'm ultimately heading towards a crisis of faith, just like Peter did. For my friend, his crisis of faith came um, with his relationship of God when that, it really didn't cross over into his childhood abuse, and ultimately it didn't cross over into his own sexuality. Now, before this crisis, before he obviously really did things in, in a really, really bad way, before that, my friend would have told you that, yeah, he, that God was a part of his life. I mean, he said, I grew up in a Christian family. We went to church. I believed in God. But like he said, he, said he felt like he couldn't really talk about these things because of the consequences that might happen um, to him. In other words, he was afraid of what people and even people in the church might think of him. And so as a result, he never let people into that room of his life. And even more devastating, he didn't let God into that room of, of his life. He never really submitted his pain. He never really submitted his abuse. He never really submitted his sexuality to God. And so at the end of the day, God wasn't permeating the very air that he was breathing in those rooms of his life. He wasn't, God wasn't the air that, that was a part of all, all these different rooms of his life. His rooms were segmented. They were apart. And as a result, crisis then happened in his life. And so the question that I have for you here, here this morning, is that how, how do you know? In other words, how do I know if I've just added another room unto my life for God to fill, or if I've actually allowed God to become the very air that I breathe in every room of my life? I'm sure look at Jesus' answer to this in Luke 6, verse 46. It says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So the evidence of whether or not we've just added another room into our life for God to fill or whether we've actually allowed God to actually become the very air that we breathe every room of our life, the evidence is whether or not we're actually doing everything that Jesus has called us to do in every room of our life. That becomes the evidence. Have I really let Jesus into every room of my life? Because believe... Has to be accompanied by faith actions in every room. That's that's the the essence of what real genuine belief is. Is that I'm actually following Jesus in every room of mine. Which means then I have to find out what God wants me to do in my career. I got to bring Him into that room. I've got to ask God what he wants to do in my marriage. I've got to bring him into that. I've got to ask him what he wants to do with my family, with my friends. I've got to bring him into that. I've got to ask him what he wants to do with my finances. I've got to bring him into that. I've got to ask God what he wants to do with my sexuality. I've got to bring him into those things, because it's not what you believe that counts. It's what you believe enough to do in every aspect of your life. That's what really counts. Hello? Did you hear what I just said? It's not what you believe that counts. It's what you believe enough to do in every room of your life. That's what really counts. But if I'm unwilling to do what God commands me to do in every room of my life, then that goes back to what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 58. Now there becomes this inconsistency in my life. Now there becomes a lack of integrity in my life. And all of a sudden, my life is segmented, and eventually everybody, that will lead you to a crisis of faith. That's what leads us to a crisis of faith. And so let me ask you a question. Have you really asked God what he wants you to do in your career? Have you really asked God what he wants to do in your marriage? Have you really asked God what he wants to do with your family, with your kids, with your future, with your finances, with your hopes and your desires, with your sexuality, with your secrets? Have you really brought God into all of that? Are you asking God what he wants to do? Or are you like my friend, just hoping that some way, somehow, that God will come into those rooms of your life and bless what you want to do? I think so many of us, that's how we end up doing. We're just adding a room to our life, and we call it call it the church room, we insert God in there, and some way, somehow, we're hoping by maybe osmosis that God will come into these other areas of your life and bless what it is that you want to do. Listen, everybody, it doesn't work. That's what Jesus said, it doesn't work. Look at this in Matthew 6, verse 24. He picks on one of these rooms. He says, you can't worship two gods at once. Loving God, loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. Now, he's, he's singling out the money room of our life. We all have a money room. You have a finance room. And he's pointing his finger at that money room of our life. And he said, you can't set up your money room as co-equal with God. You can't set up your career room as co-equal with God. You can't set up your future, your family, your relationships, your friendships. You can't set up these different rooms as co-equal to God. It doesn't work. If you do, it's going to lead you to a crisis here of faith. But look at what does work. Verse 25. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. Look what he's doing. Putting God into that room, putting him right in in the middle of that room. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God, and you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? (laughs) All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but, they have, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. By the way, Texas flowers this spring, have they ever been this great here in Texas? I've not seen it since I've been. They were amazing at this and lasted for such a long time. The ten best men and women in the country look shabby alongside of them. If God gives so much attention to the appearance of wildflowers, much, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. What's he saying? Bring Jesus into every room. Stop trying to do it on your own. Don't make this, your career co-equal with God. Let God permeate it all. Bring him into it all. There's not a lack when you do it. There's, there's greatness. There's, there's so much more when you do that. If you would, I want you to just close your eyes here. Because I want you just to kind of let God kind of stir some stuff inside of you here this morning. Because I, I want you to specifically think about your house and, and how we've talked about it. What your house looks like. Because I think intentionally or unintentionally, I just think it's easy to kind of fall into this trap of adding onto your house, this, this church room. And that's kind of where we just kind of put God and we delegate that room to God. And you're here on Sunday, and so that room exists. I, I know it exists. And, and boy, it's just so easy to kind of check off the, the box and say, I, I've done it. I, I've invested in, in, in this room. We can do that, like I said, intentionally or, or unintentionally. The question that I want you to really kind of wrestle with here this morning is, have you truly let God become the very heir that's in every room of your life? Have you really invited him into every room of your life? And he's now becoming the heir in your life. The, the word I think that best describes this lifelong process of bringing God into every room of our lives is the word surrender. Surrender. Surrender means to yield to the power, control, or possession of another it means to give up completely or to agree to forego especially in favor of another. That's what surrender means. It means to give oneself up into the power of another. It means to give oneself over to something as an influence. That, that's what surrender means. And, and, and so I, I think for most of us, because of this, these years of kind of determined independence, that surrendering tends to just be a, a continual battle of control I think most of us struggle with. But yet, maybe you're here today, and this is how I've been praying for you through this week. Maybe you're here today, and you can really identify with Peter. Maybe just like Peter, you failed. You've messed up, you stumbled. You've done the exact thing that you thought you'd never do. You've let others down, including yourself. You've messed up your life and You're beginning to wonder, is there there any way that I can get back? But you're you're hoping. I think that's why you're here. You're hoping that God will chase after you just like he did with Peter. You're hoping. You're hoping that Jesus will come after you. And just like Peter, you're desperately wanting to have breakfast with Jesus. You want to have a different meal maybe the last one that you had with him. I want you to know something here. I want you to know that that Jesus has actually set a place for you. I know that because he's right here. He's right here in our midst. He's right here in this room. He's right here. He, he was busy before you were. He was up before you were. And he's right here. And I really believe he wants you to know that he set a place for you as a matter of fact he had us make breakfast for you today because he wants you to know that he's that he's running after you that he hasn't given up on you He sees things in you that maybe you don't even see in yourself. And he's calling those things out of you. Would you let him in? Whatever whatever room in your life that maybe there's a crisis forming, would you let him in? Would you just let him become the air that you breathe in that room? Instead of hiding, instead of letting shame or control cloud that room, would you just let him in? Would you just in this moment just open your hands? And maybe just in a physical way, would you just do that? Just put your hands in front of you. Just open up your hands. I just think it's a great visual because so often what's going on in our life, we hold on to tightly. We hold on our future tightly. We hold on to the uncertainty tightly. We hold on to our desires, our hopes, our dreams. We hold on to tight. We hold on tightly. We hold on to our fears tightly. We hold on to our kids tightly. Would you just open up your hands? Would you just let him go? Would you just, and hear this more, really surrender to release control. Would you give him control over everything that's going on in that room? Would you let go? Just let go and just give, give everything to him. Father, I pray for every one of us right here these different rooms that are being highlighted even here in this moment to us. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, where we've kind of just kept you out of that room. Father, whatever those rooms are for us, would you just come (laughs) as we open the door to that room? Right here in this, I think, just this holy moment with you. As you've set this breakfast table for us, would you just step in it to that room of our life? And would you do what no one else can do? Your presence changes everything. One word changes everything. You asked Peter four words, do you love me? And it changed everything for him. <laughs> he had to repeat it three times, but it changed everything for him. God, would you speak into those rooms of our life and change the trajectory of where we're going? Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9:30 and 11:30. See you next time.